I can, I, I have a, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, and <clears throat> they ask questions all the time that are uh, crazy. <laughs> There's no, no other way to really say it, but they, they ask questions that are, that are, uh, that are difficult and they're precocious questions, questions that are beyond their years, you know, and I'm sure if you've had kids before, you under, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't had kids yet, you will find out one day. Um, there's questions that they ask sometimes, and you're like, I know I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Or the question that you asked is beyond your years, and I can't give you the total answer right now, and you're just going to have to understand that. But there are questions that kids ask and that are sometimes... Um, it, it, it falls in that category of, of questions that we should know the answer to, that, but, but we don't. Um, like one question, what is a soul? What is a soul? We use the term soul all the time. We, we use it all the time. Um, he came to save sinners' souls. Right? We tell kids this. Jesus came to save your soul from hell. But when you stop and think and you're asked the question, very basic it should be, what is a soul? How would you define it for a child? Well, it would be pretty difficult. It really would be if you stop and think about it. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the soul. And the hard part for me is convincing you that you need to know this, right? This is a topic I don't know if we ever really talk about. What is a soul? Uh, how do we understand the, the makeup of a man, of a human, I mean? What is a human? Are they body and soul? Are they body, soul, and spirit? Have we decided on that? Where do we go to in the Bible if we want to figure this kind of stuff out? Why is this important? Well, um, the way I like to think about growing in knowledge, especially when it comes to biblical knowledge, and I, I want us all as a church body to really think about this. Everything that we learn is not just for us, it's for our neighbor. Everything that you come to know and understand about God is not just for you, it's for your neighbor. Why is that? What do I mean by that? We're a small group tonight, you can answer. Go ahead. <laughs> Why is everything you learn about God also for your neighbor? Yeah. Yeah, so you, you, just like your kid might ask you in your, in your car, in a car ride to Target, Daddy, what is a soul? You, so might your neighbor ask you that question. What is a soul? You're telling me he came to save my soul from hell, but what, what is that? It really gets down to that fundamental question, what am I? What am I made of? And does the Bible actually tell me what I'm made of? Um, and so we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, we're, we're in the midst of understanding uh, more, really, about ourselves. We, we, we're kind of in a broad study of knowing God more, but we're in the section where we're really concerned with who we are as people. Next time we meet, which will be next week, we're going to talk about the fall of mankind and into sin and what that means. But this week, before we do that, since there is a, clearly a marring of our, of our soul uh, in the fall, we have to understand what we, what we are. We have to understand that we have a soul. And so in the midst of this study, we've been talking about being made in the image of God and what does it mean to be made in the image of God. 
And so far, what we've, what we've said, just to remind you, is that to be made in the image of God means that we have a combination of tools that make us uniquely fit as, uh, as creatures to steward God's creation. God tells a, uh, or has a, has a conversation um, in the beginning. He says, let us make man in our image. And so he does. And he says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the sea. So he created mankind with the specific task and purpose of having dominion over the earth as his, as his representatives. And so he gave us a unique set, a uh, combination of skills, of tools that include intelligence, reasoning ability, emotions, the ability to commune with God, self-awareness, language, communication ability, the presence of a soul or spirit or both, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, the conscience, we have a, we have a conscience, um, and, and of course, all for the purpose of having dominion over the earth. Um, we also see, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 shows God making man in his image, which has significant meaning. Because you are made in the image of God, that actually means something. What does it mean? Why is that important that you're made in the image of God? Not just rhetorical answer. What is it, what is it, why is it significant that you're made in the image of God? Yeah, you have inherent dignity as human beings. You're more valuable than a sea turtle or a dog. All right? Sorry, Emily. That was, she's like, that's a low blow. <laughs> we know you love your dog. Everybody loves their dog or their cat. I get it. It's fine. But they're not humans. All right? Um, okay? And humans have more have inherent dignity. They have inherent worth, which means that we treat them as though they have inherent worth. James makes that point, and we don't. We're not. We praise God with the mouth that, that we also curse men who are made in the image of God. But it shouldn't be. We should treat them with inherent dignity. And and humans are more valuable than than um, than the rest of the creatures on earth. And and that's the reason that the death penalty is for Christians at least is still uh, a, a viable. Uh, Punishment, right? It, God sets that penalty in Genesis chapter 9 uh, after Noah gets off the ark. He lays out, here's the foundations of why the death penalty is on the table uh, as a means of justice. Because if a man takes a human life, then that is what, is, uh, what he pays back, basically. Um, okay, and so then uh, we also said a few weeks ago, that each of the sexes are said to be made in the image of God. So male, fully made in the image of God. Female, fully made in the image of God. Together, they have been given a tool to exercise dominion over the earth, being fruitful and multiplying and filling it. So um, they have been given together the ability to procreate. Um, but, but they have inherent dignity and worth, though they have uh, different roles. They've been given different roles. Now, um, so then the question comes up, what are we made of? What is, what, is a, uh, what is man comprised of? Is man body and soul, or is man body, soul, and spirit? Right? Has anybody ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that question? Is man body and soul, or is he body, soul, and spirit? 
How many of you, just curious, just out of curiosity, have, have been taught man is body, soul, and spirit? Show hands. Body, soul, and spirit. That's what I thought. How many have taught, have been taught that man is body and soul? That soul and spirit are the same thing. So you've been taught both. Is that, did you raise your hand on the first one? Oh, you didn't. Okay. But some people have been taught both. And then how many people have never been taught anything about it at all? <laughs> all right. There's a, there's a handful of those too. <laughs> so, do what? Got, got a full audience. Every, people coming from all sides of the spectrum. Okay. So there have been two main views that have been put forward throughout the history of the church. The first is called the dichotomist view. That's D-I-C-H, dichotomous, D-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-I-S-T, dichotomist view. The other one is the trichotomist view. Same spelling except T-R-I. Trichotomist view or the dichotomist view. So dichotomy says that man is comprised of body and soul And that where the Bible uses soul and spirit, it uses them interchangeably. So that soul and spirit are interchangeable words in terms of their meaning uh, or their, their value in the biblical text. The trichotomy view says that man is comprised of body, soul, and spirit, and the spirit is that which most directly relates to God. So if you think about this for just a second, your spirit is the thing that awakens in salvation and has a connection to God. It is the, the, when you come to church and you sing praise songs and you are worshiping the Lord, the trichotomist view would say you're doing that in the spirit. You're worshiping with the Spirit. Like Jesus would say to the the woman at the well, you're worshiping in spirit and in truth, right? So it's that part of you that connects, uh, most directly relates to God. The soul, though, includes a human's intellect, emotions, and will. So the soul includes a human's intellect, emotions, and and will. So the soul, they would say, well, everybody gets that. Everybody has that by default. You're born body and soul. Everybody's, everybody's got that piece of it. And so your soul is for more, more or less the, the kind of the, uh, the unseen side of you, your rationale, your thought processes, your intellect, um, the, the, your emotions in the sense of you're, it, you're angry, you're that kind of thing. Say again, Blake, go ahead. What's that? Yeah, yeah, and Fro- Freudian, your id. Um, uh, so, though all people have a soul that can, uh, <clears throat> though all people have a soul that can serve God or sin, a person's spirit comes alive at salvation. So you're, you're, you're born with a soul. You can, you can potentially serve God in some capacity with your soul, or you can, you can sin with your soul. Um, the, the spirit comes alive at salvation. All right? 
Um, there is a third view that we won't spend much time at all on tonight, but it's called monism. And it's uh, very rarely held. In fact, there is a group um, now that holds it, and I think it's the Seventh-day Adventist. I think they hold the view of monism. Um, it, it basically says that um, you are, a, a, a person is a body and soul, and they're so united that the soul cannot live without the body. Um, that the scriptural term for soul or spirit are really just expressions of a person themselves. Um, so, or, or another way of saying the person's life. So a person that dies, their soul um, dies to or their soul sleeps. You, you may have heard that, that term soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, soul sleep. A lot of prosperity gospel preachers, uh, not to scare anybody off monism, but, but, but uh, uh, a lot of prosperity gospel preachers use that term, soul sleep, um, where they, they, because they're coming from a position of, of monism, that the body and soul are one, are one thing. So, so the, the soul doesn't go to heaven? Well, it depends on which monist you'll ask. So some will say that what happens when you die, and this is where I've heard some prosperity gospel preachers, and I don't, I'm not sure why it's connected to the prosperity gospel. I just know a lot of them hold this view. Um, they, they would say you die, your soul sleeps, and then Jesus is going to come back and raise you from the dead. And then body and soul are, are remade. They're never parted. So... That's right. Yes, you don't. There's not an intermediate term where you go uh, before you know it's all over. Essentially, now one, a big problem with that view, the view of monism, is scripture, which often is the problem. Okay, with with a lot of views. Um, so let's just look at a, a couple of these. Um, oh, back back to I forgot to read uh, Romans eight ten on the trichotomy view. This is p- part of where uh, the trichotomy view gets this idea that the Spirit awakens at salvation. Is Look at Romans 8.10. It says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life or alive because of righteousness. So they, 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 use, they say that, the, that because of salvation, there's an awakening of the, the Spirit, even though... Uh, the body, the flesh is dead. Um, now, but on the monism view, look here at Genesis 35, 18. Um, this is part of the problem, a part of the problem that they, they run into. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, and his father called him Benjamin. Not a good way for your wife to part is to have a discussion or an argument over the baby's name. Uh, <laughs> um, Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Um, and he said to him in Luke 23, 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What are all these pointing to? Separation. Separation. Yeah, there's a separation. Yeah, G- Jesus is saying w- this last one on the cross to the thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you're going to die. So who is this me you're talking about, and 
where, where is this paradise? Well, he's obviously referring to a permanence of the soul, that the soul's going somewhere. And so for, for that reason, monism has been rarely, if ever, held by mainstream Christianity. Okay, so um, <clears throat> it's just not that viable of a, of a way, I don't think, of looking at uh, the soul and the makeup of, of mankind. So the rest of what we're going to do is look at two different forms, dichotomy and trichotomy. Go ahead. Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. I'm trying to think. I'm sure they hang their hat on something, all right? I'm just, I'm going to try to be charitable a little bit, and I'm going to probably go out on a limb and say, they, they hang their hat on something, I'm sure. Yes, he does. In the same chapter that he talks about them rising from the dead and their soul being met with their body. <laughs> so um, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably not a place you want to go for stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, there's always a reason for prosperity gospel people to want to believe something. So why do they want to believe in this? In is and like the, the soul sleep? I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean... Because it's so physical. Because they, they interpret everything physically that you're going to get re- physical benefits. So why... Yeah. That might, be, that might be something there. He said everything they, everything they believe is physical. It's always a physical reward. It's not spiritual reward. And so it's not, it would be unnatural for them to kind of believe in like a, a spiritual reality, a significant spiritual reality. Um, maybe. So, I mean, again, I try to be charitable to, most, to, to many views, as many as I can, but I, I just can't see much merit in that. Jeannie? But do they believe the essential? Jesus sacrificed his Define that. Who is that you're talking about? The prosperity gospel theologians? Do they believe the essential? Prosperity gospel, no. Not properly held, no. Um, um, so, and, and there gets to be a, there's some muddy waters there to, to some degree. Um, yeah, go ahead, David. So they're the ones who do have a brink truck following the earth. Yeah. <laughs> they're the ones that certainly want one, that's for sure. Um, they probably make the reservations, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess, and I guess that's part of it too, is that, you know, um, death for them is more of a sleeping than it is a, than it is a, a, a death, which has its own New Testament connotations, but... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. Like, because monism is, is so uh, not, not widely held, and to be honest with you, a lot of Seventh-day Adventist literature just does not make it out there. Um, they take a particular view of Revelation that I've tried to get a commentary on for years, and I cannot find one that's, that's written. So, uh, so there you go. Um, uh, okay, so most of what we're going to spend our time on is dichotomy and trichotomy. Now, I'll, I'll say out of the gate, I hold a dichotomist view of, of, the, of the Scripture, but I think both of these views, not only do they have their camps within Christianity, but are, um, both are widely enough held that we could say there's liberty. You could be in either camp, okay? Um, 
dichotomy has, has been kind of the mainstream view for a long, a long period of time throughout church history, but trichotomy has had its, has had its people. Um, so dichotomy's first point would say that Scripture uses soul and spirit interchangeably. We mentioned that earlier, but spirit, uh, Scripture uses soul and spirit interchangeably. I want to give you some examples of that. Look in your, in your Scripture list here at John 12, 27. Somebody read that out loud. Somebody else, look at John 13, 21, read that. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. All right, and then this one to me is one of the more convincing ones, Luke 1, 46 to 47. Somebody read that. Um, the reason that this one, for me, is particularly convincing is because that, that falls in Mary's Magnificat, the, her celebration as she's been told that she's going to um, bear the Christ child. Um, she sings this uh, song, which is, a, which is sort of written in the, in the tempo of Hebrew poetry and is written very much like Hebrew poetry. So if you, if you read Hebrew poetry and you see a lot of this in the Psalms, what will, what will happen is you'll have these couplets, these two lines that basically say the exact same thing, but they use different words to say it. So the first line you may read and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. The second line is very similar, but a little bit easier to understand. And you go, oh, that's what he's talking about. And it, it, it explains essentially, it uses different words, in it, but it says the exact same thing as the, the first line. And so I, I think that's the way at least Luke has composed this, um, this poem. And uh, it says, uh, she, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, so you can see the parallels there, rejoicing and magnifying the Lord, God, my Savior. Um, and so then the, the, also the parallel would be soul and spirit. And um, some would say, well, she's, she's saying different things, but it, that would seem to not line up as well with, with a, a typical Hebrew poem um, that would be common in their culture. So, but then in the, in the first two verses, John 12, 27, John 13, 21, bo- both of them, they use, Jesus is using, or they're using different uh, words to describe um, what Jesus is feeling at the moment. Uh, in the first, his soul is troubled. In the second, his spirit is troubled. Um, but one of the tenets of, of the trichotomous view is that they, they don't function in the same way. They don't have the same function. And it seems as though here they do have the same function, um, at least in, in John's case. John's using them interchangeably, it seems. Um, so, uh, so anyway, point, point one is that Scripture uses soul and, and spirit interchangeably. The second thing, that the main point that they say is that at death, Scripture says either that the soul departs or that the spirit departs. There's, there's both uses, the soul departs and the spirit departs. Um, let's look at Psalm, uh, what is it? Psalm 31.5. I have it on here. Did I miss it? Oh, no. Do what? You said it's where? 31.5. Yeah, somebody read that. 
Okay, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. It was in stereo there for a minute. <laughs> Y'all were reading at the exact. It was, it was perfect. That, that was awesome. Felt like I was wearing those AirPods, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, I lo- lost where I was. Uh, John nineteen thirty. All right, and how about Acts seven fifty nine? And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." All right, so there's there's these uh, uses of both uh, soul and and spirit departing the body in death. Um, the third the third thing that they say that uh, the dichotomy view says is man is said to be either body and soul. Or body and spirit. So let's look at Matthew 10, 28. Somebody read that. And do not fear those who and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there no mention of spirit at all. It's not it doesn't seem to be a uh, an item that's at, at work here in the judgment. Um, so it would kind of leave you, if there is a third piece, what am I, what do, what do, I, what do I do with that? What am I, do I not fear that at all? Um, further, the, if the spirit is the thing that responds to the Lord, as a kind of the trichotomy view would say, then uh, shouldn't that be the one that, is con- that Jesus is concerned with? be concerned with those who, who or him who can destroy both body and spirit in hell. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like that's the case either. Um, look at uh, the next uh, verse there, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Yeah, well, there Paul uses it, right? Where Jesus didn't use it, now Paul does use it, uh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And how about 2 Corinthians 7.1? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay. Now, the, the last thing uh, that we have here in dichotomy view is that the soul or the spirit can sin. Um, look at 1 Peter uh, one twenty-two. Okay, Revelation eighteen fourteen. They're the last one on the page. Now, remember, this is uh, in the context of Revelation 18. This is the world being destroyed and the merchants and the ship captains and all those people that are watching the world be destroyed in front of them and all their trade and commerce and all their prosperity is basically going away. Um, What's said to them is the fruit for which your soul longed 
and it, the implication there is you're, you sinfully longed. Like you're, you're the fruit that your soul desired so much more than me is now basically coming to ruin, essentially, is the, is the, the point. 2 Corinthians uh, 7.1, again, which was just the one we just read. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, body, and spirit. Bringing, so there's the defilement, body, and spirit. And then Deuteronomy 2.30. Um, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So here's this um, obstinacy of heart and spirit. His spirit has been hardened, so he's, he's sinning, essentially, with this, um, his uh, spirit, I guess you would say. Um, so basically the point is that if, this, if the, the argument from the trichotomy side is that you're born body and soul, and the soul is the carnal side of spiritual life, if you will, then the spirit is awakened at salvation, and the spirit is the one that's kind of pulling you in righteous directions and your flesh and your soul are the ones that are sort of, uh, I guess, pulling the opposite direction. Uh, it would seem as though, well, we're told in Scripture, both they use them interchangeably in regards to sin, spiritual sinfulness. So uh, it would seem as though they can, either one can function in that capacity. Go ahead, Marion Smith. That's Okay. Sometimes. And so that's where I'm having trouble with the soul and spirit being confused interchangeably, and now the heart and spirit being used. Yeah. Because when I became a Christian, I, I was taught that the, the soul was the mind, the will, and the emotions. Yeah. And so I think that's why I'm having trouble mm-hmm. because having, you know, learned from that, you mm-hmm. know, I would see heart more as spirit and soul as spirit. Right. And I'm not saying I'm right, but I mean, that's kind yeah. of. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I don't think typically the way that the the uh, really new and old testament will use the term heart is a, is sort of the seat of your emotions, the center of your emotions. The King James used the term bowels in the same way as the the center of your emotions, um, and so so, but your your soul and your spirit are uh, functioning similarly as well as that the unseen thought process side of you, right? So is it the disposition? In other words, is it, I guess I'm having trouble with a, um, you know, I don't believe when we're, when we're speaking, of course, that we're speaking of something that Right. Something you can define that's in the body and then say heart. Right. They can't operate on it. Right. Right. They can't find it. Right. But um but yet, you know, we use that word heart and there is a heart right. beating in your body. Right. But now I would have to go I would have to go back to see if it's if if uh if the term for heart is ever used as the organ itself. I'm sure it is. Uh, at some point in Scripture, but rarely would it be used that way. Most of it is going to be used in a spiritual sense that you need to be circumcised of heart. 
And so th- that really means that you need salvation. Um, Yes. Yes. And I don't think that's wrong. I mean, it, 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 um, it is a, it, uh, the heart it, it is that way, but it's, it's used, I think, in the same way that uh, often your, your spirit is troubled, your uh, soul is troubled, let not your heart be troubled, right? Uh, you believe also in me, right? I mean, so Jesus, I think the, the New Testament largely is going to use those terms um, in much the same way, because they're talking about the spiritual side of you that knows and believes in God and is inclined to follow Him. Soul, spirit, heart, um, I don't know, if, I guess the King James guts, you know. Um, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the heart being desperately wicked, and, and remember, your heart is an organ in your chest. So when they say, when they say heart, they're not meaning that you're, the organ that beats 60 beats a minute in your chest is, is, is wicked. They're saying that your soul is worthy of eternity and hell. And so by nature, uh, we're by nature children of wrath. That's a, pointing to the same idea. And so you're, it's, it's, it's using them interchangeably. There's an eternal side of you that is desperately wicked. And what is needed is redemption. That needs to be uh, transformed, radically transformed. And what, in, the, in a similar way, what you're dealing with right now, being a saved person, is the flesh. Well, not necessarily always... Physically, am I dealing with the flesh? If I were to be struggling over, you know, depression, it wouldn't necessarily be a fleshly struggle. It would be a spiritual struggle, but I'm struggling with the flesh, right? Uh, so you, you need that to be, to be taken over as well. So it's using spiritual terms f- to talk about organs, just like your skin or your heart, right? But, but right. But I, I, think, it's, I think both the, the soul and the spirit are used in the, the same capacity as well as, you're right, heart, bowels, many other things are, are plugged into that as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Good question. Um, so here's what I've done on the trichotomy side, is I'm trying to present the arguments that they make, and some probably, they're going to bring up some verses that you probably have in your mind and then I've tried to also put how the dichotomy side would respond to that particular position on the paper. Uh, so the first argument is that Scripture speaks to three parts of a man. Uh, so look at 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.23. Somebody read that out loud. There it is. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
All right. So it seems as though uh, what the author brings up here in the text, the first one is Paul, the second one is probably Paul or one of his cohorts uh, in Hebrews, is basically saying, it seems, identifying the three parts of of man. But the way the dichotomy side uh, responds to that, and and I think this is... Um, this is right, although it's arguable, and that's why it's been held by both people, or both, both positions have been held um, throughout church history, um, that in both places, what, they're me- what the author is meaning to get to is that uh, the entirety of a human, down to the soles of his feet, uh, need to be, or, or in the first case in Thessalonians, need to be sanctified. And he even says, sanctify you completely. And it's a way of saying from the top of your head down to the soles of your feet, uh, it would be much like the same way we use the, the phrase uh, thoughts and intentions. Uh, you know, the, my thoughts and intentions. And what I'm trying to say there by saying thoughts and intentions, that's the same thing. Uh, it's the in, internal things you don't see, the motivators, right? I'm trying to say all of that. All of that is my thoughts and intentions are, were, were good, right? I'm trying to say all the things that I intended to do, all the things that I wanted to do, all the things that I was thinking about doing were good. Um, I think that's, that's kind of what he's getting at, that the author means to express um, totality. So the re- one of the reasons why that's, I think, the right reading of it is because when you get to some passages in the New Testament, if we mean to break mankind down, and that was the intention, is to break mankind down into his parts. That's what Paul's intentions were. Then what were Jesus' intentions? In Matthew twenty two thirty seven, and he said, to, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then in Mark twelve thirty, a very similar one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Is he meaning to break humanity down into, in this case, four parts in Mark and three parts in Matthew? I don't think so. I think he's trying to say, you need to love the Lord your God with everything, with everything you've got, okay? There's, you can't leave anything out. And in the same way, I think that's what Paul is trying to get to. How sharp is the sword? Well, it's, it's so sharp that it can cut things that are indivisible, Right? That's how sharp it is. It can cut through things that are, that are indivisible. And um, so uh, the second thing that they say is Scripture speaks to different categories of people, those of the flesh and those of the spirit. This one's kind of difficult. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14 3 to, to 3, 4. Somebody read that out loud for us. Um, he, so the argument goes 
typically in the in with this uh, passage is that there's two peop- there's two groups of people. There's the people that are that are fleshly, and there's the people that are spiritual. So the people that are spiritual don't have uh, the people that are fleshly don't have a spirit. But the the I, I think the foolishness of that argument is in verse sixteen when he says. Um, uh, uh, no, no, that's not the right verse. When he says that uh, you are babes in Christ, you're infants in Christ, uh, in 3.1, where he says, as infants in Christ. But it's people of the flesh as infants in Christ. He's saying that they are in Christ. They do, they do have a spiritual side. It's just, it doesn't desire obedience. It doesn't desire real food yet. And they're immature. They're very immature. And one of the other reasons why I don't think that's the right reading of it is because he's going to appeal to them in 1 Corinthians that they need to grow up. And so he's appealing to a spiritual side of them that should be responding and should be uh, growing in maturity. And so I don't think what Paul is saying there is that, that there's different categories of people, that there's some that don't have their spiritual side awakened um, yet. Um, the next argument they make is Paul speaks of his mind and his spirit operating differently, kind of in different realms. Paul speaks of his mind and his spirit in operating differently. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For I, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, that seems like the body isn't even engaged at all. That your spiritual side is just right there with the Lord, and your physical side is just absent. What does he mean? Anybody want to take a stab at that? What is he getting at? Have you ever um, had a real, just a real dark period in your life, in your walk with Christ? Had just a, uh, a, just a, a deep time of depression. Um, if you've never had that, I don't recommend you going through it, obviously. <laughs> it's, not, it's not fun. Um, but there are times where you, all you can do is grieve. And in that grief, there are prayers that you utter that you could never retell somebody because you can't even explain what it was that you were praying. Not that you were speaking a different language necessarily, though Paul may be talking about some of those things, but not, not necessarily that, but that your prayers are, um, are you, it's, it's almost like your, your, your mind couldn't generate that kind of prayer. That's hard to explain if you've never been there. But if you have, then, then you know. Paul talks about the, this kind of thing that I'm talking about in Romans 8, if you'll turn there, if you have your Bibles. I, I, sorry if you don't. The pew back in front of you, uh, you can use. Uh, Romans chapter, chapter 8. Um, in verse 26. Now, the, the context of this passage is Paul is talking about suffering. 
and, and he's saying that the suffering that we're going through is not worth comparing with what is to be revealed to us after death. So he says, uh, likewise, in verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. But I think he's getting at the same kind of thing, that in suffering, uh, often we have no idea what to pray for. Um, When friends are suffering, sometimes we have no idea what to pray for. Uh, I was talking about this with a person the other day. There are times where you see death is imminent, but it feels like a failure to pray that the person die well. You, you want to pray for healing, and yet you know that this is terminal. And so what do you pray? What do you pray for? And there are times where you're in those situations where the, the feeling is guttural almost, where you just somehow you engage in, in prayer even though your, your mind is, is not there and not thinking those things. I don't know how else to explain that, but um, I see enough nodding heads that maybe some of you have been there and have experienced that kind of thing before. Um, but I, I think that's what he's getting at um, is not that they they're operate in two different realms, but that... Uh, but that there are times where your spirit is engaged in a way that your mind never could be. Um, The next argument, and just quickly here, personally, there is an awareness of spiritual experiences. So there's there's another argument that basically says um, that there are times where you just become aware of that Christians have a heightened sensitivity to spiritual things that other people don't have. Um, that may be in times of worship. That may also be, and you notice the same verse reference there of, of, of like in prayer. That may be in times of worship, or that may be in like if you've ever walked into a house that is just something's gone on there. There's been some wickedness there. If you've ever walked into a house where you feel just something's not right here, you're kind of disturbed in spirit, that kind of thing. And so they're saying that awareness doesn't happen um, prior to uh, the fall, but I think the scriptures, and I'll, I'll let you read those uh, at, at a later time, the scriptures will point to the, that the soul uh, has this disturbing feeling, and the spirit has this as well, that, that both of these are pointed to. It's not just the spiritual side of someone, but the, it's pointed to in scripture several times that the soul is, is that way as well. Um, the next argument is that our spirit is what makes us different from animals. Now, this, so if you'll look with me at Genesis 1.21 and Genesis 9.4, this is, these are particularly odd uh, words here. So God created the great sea creatures, and the ESV is not going to help us out here, but I'll, I'll, help, I'll help the ESV here. So God created this, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every uh, uh, winged uh, bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. You see where it says, God created the great sea creatures and every uh, living creature. Uh, That word is every soul. God created uh, every soul. 
All right? So the argument there is that they're, the, they're using the term soul, the author of Genesis is using the term soul with living, like, beasts of the field, animals, okay, that animals have a soul. But the word that they use for, for living creature, it can mean just uh, life. That's why the ESV has translated it living creature instead of soul, because it can mean just generically, he's created every life, every life on the earth. The second one, but you shall not eat uh, flesh with its soul. That is its blood. All right? So he's talking about um, the, the killing of animals and that you have to let the blood out. You have to drain all the blood. You can't eat it because uh, you can't eat it with its soul. And, but again, uses the same word there, nephesh, which can mean just generically life. And that's probably a better way to, to translate it. Does it make sense? Yes? No? Okay. Um, look <laughs> indifferent. Okay. Why does this matter? Uh, so, Psalm 103, 1. Uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Here's a spiritual aspect, a connection in worship with uh, the soul. Luke 1, uh, 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Again, engaged in worship. And then Revelation 6, 9. Um, which is where it's somewhere on here, I know. Revelation 6, 9. Uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar uh, the souls of those who had been slain uh, for the word of, the, of God and for the witness they had borne. So here, here we are with et- eternal souls that actually uh, live on. I think the right way of defining the soul, for those questions that come up for your kids and your neighbors, um, is that it's the immaterial element of our nature. It's there in your packet. The immaterial element of our nature that relates to God and lives forever. If we define it that way, then animals do not have a soul. They have life, but they don't have a soul. Not to break anybody's, burst anybody's bubble that has a deer dog that they love. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but one of, the, one of the best ways I've heard it answered um, is in like little kids' catechisms and things like that. We do that with our kids. Um, one of the questions is, what is a soul? And the, the catechism is really just, for those of you who don't know, it's basically just simple questions followed by simple answers. And it helps parents tra- train them how to teach their kids these big, con- big, big concepts, but boil them down to very, the, basic, the m- most basic components. One of the questions is, what is a soul? And the kid has to kind of like memorize this, almost like flashcards, and uh, gives them like spiritual vocabulary. But what is a soul? My soul includes all of me that should know and love God. My soul includes all of me that should know and love God. And that is everything that should be inclined and should know and love God um, is, is in the soul. And uh, I, I think that's, a, that's the right way to, to look at it. Um, the last one, last argument here is our spirit is what comes alive at regeneration. Um, and they use the Romans 8.10 that we read earlier. Um, but it, it, it raises the question about how whole of a person are you when you're born uh, if you don't have a spirit. And, um, but it, it really it seems to point to not just um, your spirit being dead, but your whole person being dead and trespasses and sins before conver- conversion. Your whole person becomes a new creation, as it says in Second Corinthians 5.17. Now, why is all of this relevant to us? Why should we care about the soul? And what we're made of. 
Yes. It reminds us that we're eternal. How does that impact us missionally? Do we engage in the mission field? Yeah. Now, to be clear, neither the dichotomy or the trichotomy are not argue, are, are arguing that neither one of them is arguing that we're not eternal. Okay? So both of them, either one of them could be held. I, I, I don't happen to hold the trichotomy view, but you can, and that's fine. Um, but thinking about it and understanding it and understanding why you fall that way, remember, we don't learn anything that's not for our neighbor. It's not just for you. You don't go to Bible studies just for you. You don't think about deep things and ask questions just for you. If you do, then whatever bores you, then get out, right? I mean, like, at the point where you're bored, then just check out. The reality is sometimes we have to cover things that are, that are strange, that we've never thought about before, and that are a little bit foreign to us, or we may not necessarily understand the reason for, but I hope you get asked that question by your neighbor. Do you believe that we have a soul? <laughs> Actually, yes. We just talked about this on Wednesday. <laughs> let, me take, let, me, let me take you to some scriptures. But it's important to think through what does the Bible actually tell us? When we start to ask these kinds of questions and we start to dig into these scriptures, we start to realize the Bible actually clues us in on a lot of things that we wouldn't ordinarily think about or that we would just read past. You'd read all of those passages in the past and you probably would never think, am I comprised of a body, soul, or am I comprised of a body, soul, and spirit? You'd probably never think, well, Jesus seems to be using soul and spirit here interchangeably, right? You probably would never think that. But... All of the stuff that we learn is for our neighbor, and therefore it's all it's missional. Um, so why should we understand a variety of uh, Christian opinions on these topics? Why should we nail that down? Why should we understand a variety of Christian opinions? So here are the here's the topic, the soul. Here are the two opinions. Why should we understand both opinions? Go ahead, Blake. Because if we just get caught up in one, one view, we can get really close-handed on things that are tertiary issues, and all of a sudden someone feels like a heretic because they disagree on something that there's always been room for discussion on. Yeah. When we, when we ignore history and we ignore the developments of our doctrine for 2,000 years, then we start to get sideways on our opinions, and we start to think that our opinions are fact. And then sometimes people go the opposite way and start to think the facts that they've been told are really opinions. Because when we say, well, what I believe, that's a fact. Well, then how do you explain this first? I can't. Well, then it's an opinion. <laughs> go ahead, Mary. Sure. It, oh, it certainly can. Yes. Um, you, do, you mean, do you mean holding on to things that are... Is that what you mean? Where, where you have a belief that is, um, like the difference between dichotomy and trichotomy, and you know the way I always call it trichotomy, yeah. and you know the dichotomy belief, that doesn't change the fact that we are believers. Right. Right. And we have right. Um, yeah. So, so if we're not careful, we can let that lead if we, if we, if we hold on tightly to our own yes. Um, doctrine. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. You, you, you end up getting into a war, a turf war that was never supposed to be started in the first place. That were, there was always supposed to be liberty on these, on these opinions or on these views. Um, it helps us to establish the yard of Christian orthodoxy. Where's the yard of Christian orthodoxy? How do I know when I've strayed into heresy and how do I know when I'm not? Well, if everything for you is heresy, then nothing is heresy, right? Like if everything is a, is a, is a hot button, is a red button issue, then nothing is, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, on all of that. Uh, so, <laughs> um, but the trichotomy view, so you have to understand the Greek language wasn't just created for the Bible. So they're using terms that are borrowed from, from culture, just like we do. And um, so the, 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 but largely before, before the New Testament, um, Plato and Aristotle had developed these, this, um, is it Plato and Aristotle? It is Plato and Aristotle. Had developed the, the tripartite view of the, of the human. And a lot of early Christianity had borrowed a lot from Plato um, and Greek philosophy on, on, the, on that kind of thing. And so there was use of those Greek terms that the New Testament does use but doesn't seem to draw as, I'm a dichotomist, but doesn't seem to draw as hard a line uh, between them as Greek philosophy did. Um, Hebrew is another matter altogether, because <laughs> it's a totally different worldview altogether than Greek philosophy. You know? So, yeah, hopefully that answers it a little bit. But anyway, let's, um, let's pray, and then go pick up your kids, or I'm going to get killed. Uh, <laughs> Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for an opportunity just to to really dive deep into a topic we never really think about or talk about very much, and hopefully just to engage our minds. And I, I, I pray that this is useful in some capacity, that, um, that even for our neighbor, that we get into conversations like these and we think, wow, I cannot believe I just talked about this on Wednesday. Um, I pray you bring those conversations to the table, that we could uh, really understand a little bit more um, about why we grow in knowledge and that it really is for missional purposes that we learn what we learn for our neighbor. And I pray that you would help put it to use. Um, so use whatever we have uh, for the furtherance of your kingdom in the lives of, of the people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.